potentially solving a cold case should never be a sad or depressing event. This is the Veritas 7 True Crime Podcast with your host, Kurt Dillon. This podcast is like nothing else out there. It's true crime, but we don't present that in a sad or morose kind of manner. The Veritas 7 features the most interactive and immersive true crime podcasting experience ever imagined. Our whole goal is engagement with our audience. That's before, during, and after we record each episode. The whole purpose of this show is to actually try and solve these crimes. And we use real police documents to do that. Don't forget to like and subscribe. So you'll know right away when each new episode goes live. This is the only true crime podcast I know of where the audience can actually help solve the crime. We are all about trying to solve these crimes. Our whole team is dedicated to uncovering the truth. That's where the name Veritas comes from. Let's get into the action. Take it away, Kurt. Five, four, three, two, one. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today, your host, Kurt Dillon, for another exciting episode of the Veritas 7. Today, we are going to dive deep into the horrific murder of Martha Moxley. It was 1975, it was the night before Halloween, mischief night as a lot of people call it, and in the very rich area of Greenwich, Connecticut, the Moxleys, who lived roughly across the street and diagonally from the Skakels, were just enjoying a regular and average night, uh, an average Connecticut October evening, which was it was pretty brisk. It was like 40 degrees outside that night. And Martha ended up getting uh, clubbed over the head with a golf club. And then the golf club was broken and the shaft was run through her neck into her throat. That was the actual kill shot. What really adds a lot of depth and drama to this case is that is beside the fact that it was, you know, an innocent 15-year-old girl that got murdered basically on her front yard, but the fact that the lead suspects in the matter were the Skakels across the street. Now, if the name Skakel doesn't immediately ring a bell with you, that's okay. It's the maiden name of Ethel Skakel, better known as Ethel Kennedy, the wife of assassinated former Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and father of current presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That's right, his mother. Her nephew is Michael Skakel, who was the lead suspect in this case and was at one point actually convicted of it and sentenced to a long prison sentence of which he did 12 years before his case was eventually overturned. So we're going to go into all the details of that. You definitely don't want to miss it. Always an interesting case when any part of the Kennedy family is involved and this is no exception. It will not disappoint. So sit back, buckle up, grab your chair, get your soft drink, get something to eat because Veritas means truth and the truth starts now. I can't believe the price of dog food is getting outrageous. And if I want to save a few bucks, I have to carry a 50-pound bag of kibble up the stairs into my apartment. There has to be a better way. There is. I'm so glad you said something. You poor thing, we've been using TummyTimePetSupplies.com for over a year now. Tummy Time Pet Supplies? What's that? TummyTimePetSupplies.com. They have all the major brands and most smaller brands as well. In fact, we not only get all of our dog and cat supplies there, but they also have everything we need for Brett's chinchilla, Ashley's ferrets, Haley's iguana, and even Jordan's pet tarantula. Wow, they sell all that? And more. 
But what's best about TummyTimePetSupplies.com is that they ship everything through Amazon Fulfillment. That means that everything you order gets delivered right to your door, and if you're an Amazon Prime customer, shipping is almost always free. That really sounds incredible, but I bet it's super expensive. Mark just got laid off and I can't afford all those special conveniences for a while. Nonsense. In fact, Tummy Time offers some of the most reasonable prices anywhere. You really have to be a whiz and coupon shopping to beat their everyday prices, and when they run sales, forget about it. I can't believe it, an incredible selection, great prices, and right to your door service. So what do you think? I think the next time I buy anything for my pets, I'm going to TummyTimePetSupplies.com. I think that's a very wise choice. Me too. That's right. For all your pet needs, it's TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Remember TummyTimePetSupplies.com. We're back. I just want to take a minute to introduce the rest of my co-hosts that are going to be working with me on this episode. I'm here with April Hill. Hello, everyone. It's April. Ellie Sherrill. Hey, hey, it's Ellie. Matt Sloniker. Hey, guys. Welcome. Diane Bernholtz. Hi, everyone. This is Diane. Paige Smith. Hey. And Kat Dahman. Meow. There we go. All right. Awesome. So I was really coming into consciousness and developing my fascination with true crime. Even at that early age, I was four when this poor girl got murdered. And I remember it was still a hot topic. And I remember in school reading the book Murder in Greenwich by Mark Furman. And this case has just always perplexed me. It's one of the first true crime cases I really studied. And it stuck with me my whole life. What do you think about that, folks? What do you what, What's your take on this? What really stuck out to me when looking over this case, she was this really loved, beautiful girl. Everybody said that she was friends with everyone she met with. She was athletic. And I just was really wanting to look more into who would have possibly done this to somebody like that. So true. Like, if you look through the... There's a whole bunch of pictures that are out there of Martha. And, you know, she's always got this glowing look on her face. She's always really happy. She's always surrounded by other people. She really looks like that type of girl that lights up a room when she comes into it, you know? Yes, definitely. And what's so striking about this as well is the way that she was killed and the way that it seems like such a rage killing. And you can try to look at the way that she was killed in order to try to figure out the motive and who may have done it. I agree. That's the one thing that I didn't learn till later on in life uh, when I got my first degree in psychology and, and I really started, you know, getting into the motivations of people and, and what gets humans to do the things that they do. And you, you can't beat somebody like that and stab them through the throat unless you're really angry with them. Right. And the fact that she was only attacked apparently in the face and the head to me, that is suggestive as well about what were they trying to do? Why were they trying to get rid of this sweet face? It meant something to them. It just seems like there was a very, very powerful emotion of rage or jealousy or something along those lines that was behind this murder. Absolutely agree. What about you, Kat? What do you think about this one? I, I agree with, with that. I mean, take away her beauty, uh, you know, destroying her throat she didn't have a voice left she didn't have her beauty left i mean very much rage 
I completely agree. Uh, you know, the whole situation with Martha, the I found the suspect list in this case to be really, really compelling. Because you have the older brother, Thomas, or Tommy, who admittedly liked her and whom she admittedly liked. And they both admit her and her diary and him later on when he was being interviewed that they were making out that night. So you have that interest. Then you have the tutor. I forget the guy's name now. Don't have it in front of me. But there was a guy that was living in the house, in the Skakel house with them. Who was like a live-in tutor. What's that? Ken Littleton, I believe. Yes, that's him. You're right. That's Littleton. He was living in the house. There was a couple of reports that he had expressed some kind of inappropriate interest in Martha because he was obviously an adult and she was, she had just turned 15, you know, very shortly before this Halloween where they were out there. But there are reports that they flirted a little bit uh, that I read in a couple of different articles. So you can't rule him out as a suspect. And then you have Michael and you have Michael who was in love with her and who was admittedly, uh, you know, vying for her affection and extremely jealous over the fact that she was making out with his brother. That comes out even more so, I don't know in your research, if you read any of the pages of her diary. When this episode goes live, we'll have in on the website at www.theveritas7.com, we will have the photographs of the actual pages of her diary in her own hand, in full color, where she talks about her feelings about Tommy, her feelings about Michael. So you get to actually get a little bit of perspective from her own point of view. Did anybody come across any of that stuff? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to call it. I mean, my suspicions regarding Michael, Scott, is it Skakel? Skakel? How are Skakel. you pronouncing that? Skakel. Skakel. I mean, the presence of the diary, the alleged confession to his friend. I mean, those to me are compelling factors already. So, um, and then... I, I just think it's possible that he thought he was invincible because he was part of the Kennedy family. So I don't know. I, 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 I that's who I think it is. It's Michael. It's very, right. I mean, it's very possible. He apparently, apparently the prosecution called multiple witnesses. There wasn't just the one witness who said that he had confessed. I think the prosecution called multiple witnesses who said that he at least insinuated that he had killed her even if right. he didn't outright confess to it. And right. he apparently had alcohol problems from quite a young age. All of that stuff is true. There were people, there was no direct confession, but there was a lot of innuendo. And there were a lot of people that claimed, not a lot of people, but there were several that claimed that he made statements leading people to believe that he was responsible for her death. Uh, matter of fact, one of them even said, uh, the quote was something to the effect of, uh, you know, he said, I, you know, I did it and I got away with it. I could do it again. I just want to get something clear. So the person who was convicted, there's evidence that the older brother and her were sort of talking and liking each other. They, right. They were making out that night. Okay. Several witnesses testified that they were making it. They had a rather lengthy, heavy petting and makeout session earlier that night before Tommy, his name is. He went with a couple of his friends to a cousin's house. He wanted Martha to come with him, but Martha was only 15 and had a curfew. So she was not allowed to go. So she had to stay back with Michael. Michael decided not to go and he decided to stay home. So he was home with her 
after Tommy and everybody else went to the cousin's house. Now, just as a just as a thing, that doesn't necessarily clear Tommy or anybody else that was in the car because there were reports that after about a half an hour or 45 minutes, they came back. Yes, definitely. I just want to say one thing that I really was sitting out to me when I was doing the research was, to me at least, I really do think that there's a sexual component to this crime, whether it was because she denied, um, what's the guy's name again, who was convicted? I'm sorry. Michael. Michael. Whether she denied Michael after her being with the brother that night and that sort of thrown to that rage, like, oh, everybody loves you, you're this beautiful, popular girl, and like sort of trying to, it's sort of like a control thing. Like she denied him access. So he like took access, even though it wasn't in that sexual way that he may have wanted, if that makes sense to you guys. Oh, it absolutely does. Especially with that family. You know, I'm not one for genetic predisposition as far as personality traits go. But let's be honest, there is a long track record in the Kennedy and Skakel families of large hubris. Where people are used to getting what they want. They're not used to anybody saying no to them. That's true. And I and I agree about the the sexual component. I mean, you know, people sometimes think, you know, there has to be sexual intercourse, you know, for it to be considered a sexual crime. But I, you know, I agree that there this just lacks of uh, a sexual rage. Yes, and she was found with her pants and underwear pulled down. Like, she yes. denied him, and that might have embarrassed him. So he had to take control back and embarrass her in that same way while feeling like he's being put back into control. To me, that seems like the sociological and psychological thing that could have happened to, like, precipitate the crime. And take away her beauty. Uh, yes. I mean, it, it feeds right into that, whether, you know, if it were Michael, that's fine. But, you know, whoever it was might not have even realized until reliving the moment just how sexual it was exactly That's so true. well and unfortunately you know once we get the police records hopefully we'll get a little bit more information as to maybe he was you know angrily bludgeoning her with that and then maybe she wasn't completely deceased yet so then the final way because now she has the ability if she's still alive to to say what happened to her was the 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 shaft stabbing mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. yeah the the now one thing that i want to point out because i was actually at that part of the trial part of the FOIA request that i have going on for this trial is to get the actual transcript of his trial the reason why i'm trying to get that is because there was a psychologist and i don't remember his name now because it's going back several years he's not like a household name kind of psychologist but there's a psychologist that testified at his trial for the prosecution who came with a theory and it's only a theory and psychological theories are a dime a dozen but if you were in the courtroom and you looked at Skakel's face when this psychologist seemingly emotionally undressed him on the stand. Now, he never took the stand in his own defense, but when the psychologist was on the stand, the prosecutor asked him questions that were nothing short of brilliant. And the, the prosecutor asked him, what scenario could he think of that would explain the evidence? Hypothetically. 
And what the psychologist said was, I believe that in a jealous fit, Skakel came up behind her and attempted to force himself on her in a sexual manner. When he got her undressed, he could not perform out of fear because he was a child, whatever, out of being compared to his brother. Maybe she said something that mocked him out or like laughed at his physical prowess or what something happened in the psychologist's belief that made him impotent and unable to perform after he got her undressed. And that she might have said something mocking him at the time, which sent him into the rage. I want to jump up off of that comment because I think it's super interesting. And as a former prosecutor, we would have what we call the theory of the case, right. where we try to figure out exactly what happened. And I've been thinking about that a lot in this case because we're talking about someone with a golf club. And it seems so unlikely to me that Michael or whoever did it was actually holding a golf club at the time that he was interacting with her. And all the evidence shows that the golf club came from the Skakel home. It had belonged, I guess it was missing from uh, the mom's set. And she had passed away a couple of years before that. But what exactly happened? Did he go back home? Did someone go back to the house and grab it and then come back across the street and attack her in her own driveway? It just seems so unlikely to me that he actually had it with him at the time that this rage started. So there's a little bit more of, um, I guess, time that I would say that had to have happened between whatever triggered it and actually having that golf club in hand. Curious to know what you all think about that. I'd also like to know along those same lines, and I don't know how we could tell, maybe from pictures or blood splatter, but did her pants come off when she was still alive mm. or did that happen afterwards? Good question. There's, there's really That's no way to point, tell huh? if she was undressed post-mortem or anti-mortem. Maybe anti splatter meaning is the only at the thing time I of death and post-mortem meaning after. What's that? Yeah. The splatter. Maybe splatter. Mm -hmm. If she had a splatter on her thighs or was there splatter on the jeans? You know there had to be a heck of a mess. There was. Right. And the, but the thing is, what they don't know is at what point there wasn't any splatter until she was stabbed. So the being clubbed with the club didn't break skin. It did crack her skull and cause a cranial fracture, according to the autopsy report. But it did not break the skin, so there was very little or no bleeding that occurred at the time of her getting hit with the club. Be Blood able force. to get a hold of that report because and the only reason I think of this is because I am in a relationship with somebody who is left-handed. So I wonder if there's records that indicate whether these blunt force with the golf club was swinging in a certain direction. Like if you're going to take a club and swing at something over and over, are those bludgeons on a certain side of her head? And would you see that um, in that report? And is that something that they could match up with some of the suspects or so on on to see if that's even just another clue that you could rule out unless they some one of them was ambidextrous i mean that's true too yeah <laughs> i mean especially swinging a golf club is a little bit different than things something like a baseball bat because it's lighter so it is possible if you're right-handed to swing a golf club from the left side and vice versa if you're left-handed to swing a golf club from the right side just because it's light and it has like a heavy you know thing at the end of it 
So that makes it a little bit easier to function as an amb ambidextrous. But like I said, the blood came from the shaft being stabbed through her neck. What they debate about a lot during the trial was whether or not he kept hitting her with the club until the head of the club came off or whether he broke the shaft over his knee and then stabbed her with it. I can't believe the price of dog food is getting outrageous. And if I want to save a few bucks, I have to carry a 50-pound bag of kibble up the stairs into my apartment. There has to be a better way. There is. I'm so glad you said something. You poor thing, we've been using TummyTimePetSupplies.com for over a year now. Tummy Time Pet Supplies? What's that? TummyTimePetSupplies.com. They have all the major brands and most smaller brands as well. In fact, we not only get all of our dog and cat supplies there, but they also have everything we need for Brett's chinchilla, Ashley's ferrets, Haley's iguana, and even Jordan's pet tarantula. Wow, they sell all that? And more. But what's best about TummyTimePetSupplies.com is that they ship everything through Amazon Fulfillment. That means that everything you order gets delivered right to your door, and if you're an Amazon Prime customer, shipping is almost always free. That really sounds incredible, but I bet it's super expensive. Mark just got laid off and I can't afford all those special conveniences for a while. Nonsense. In fact, Tummy Time offers some of the most reasonable prices anywhere. You really have to be a whiz and coupon shopping to beat their everyday prices, and when they run sales, forget about it. I can't believe it, an incredible selection, great prices, and right to your door service. So what do you think? I think the next time I buy anything for my pets, I'm going to TummyTimePetSupplies.com. I think that's a very wise choice. Me too. That's right. For all your pet needs, it's TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Remember TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Thanks for tuning in. We know you have a choice and appreciate that you've chosen the Veritas 7. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and post a rating for the show before you go. Those metrics are really important for us. And if it's within your means to help us carry on our mission to revitalize these cold cases, please consider becoming one of our sponsors by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Veritas 7 and signing up for any of our three available tiers of sponsorship. Each one provides a ton of extra content, like message chatting with our hosts in real time while we're recording, or even being able to call in voicemails to the show that we'll play on the air. Thanks again for being such an awesome listener. Now back to the show. I feel like he broke it over his knee because, as you said, the skin wasn't broken. And if he had really exhausted himself doing that, I think the skin would have definitely broken. Like, it is a blunt force object, but there are sharp points on it. More sharp points, not exactly sharp points. But I do think he probably would have had to broken it over his knee based on the skin not breaking on its own. Right. And most of the reports that I read agree with you, Paige, uh, because the where the shaft was broken in the middle... It's very hard to imagine somebody hitting somebody in the head and the shaft breaking where it broke. Usually it would broke, break closer to the tip, which it did because the head of the uh, club did come flying off the golf club. But that's not where she got stabbed. Where the head broke off the shaft is not where she got stabbed. It was broken in the middle again. And that jagged part of the shaft is what was rammed through her throat close to the handle. There was a piece of the shaft that was broken off that was only about 18 to 20 inches long. And that was the piece that was used as a dagger on her. So that's where a lot of the science believed that 
He hit her with the club, broke the club, got frustrated that the head of the club came off, and you can't really beat somebody to death with a golf club that doesn't have a, a tip on it. So he broke the club over his knee and took the jagged thing and drove it through her throat. The order of events is what's really crazy in this case, because none of the reports that I read, either the postmortem, the crime scene report, none of the information that was read in the, when I was at the trial or that I've been able to find afterwards or that you can discern from the crime scene photos. Now, we have a lot of crime scene photos in this case. They're all going to be up on the website when this episode goes live. But we have episodes, we have photographs of the shaft, we have photographs of the head of the club, we have photographs of her body covered with a blanket, where the body was dragged, which leads to believe that obviously whoever it was that killed her knew the area and was comfortable with the area because she was not killed where her body was found. So um, whoever it was that killed her, after they killed her, they dragged her under that gigantic tree where her body was found the next morning. I have a question, uh, and, Kurt, is yeah. um, in a lot of the cases that we've discussed recently, a lot of times the topic is of DNA, and I hadn't seen any records so far in some of my um, searches of DNA evidence or if there was anything discovered in the Skakel home as far as clothing or any type of um, blood evidence or any type of markings on either Tommy or Michael. They did not find any markings. Now, here's where it gets interesting with the forensics inside the house. When the police originally got on the crime scene and they wanted to go search the Skakel house, they were denied admission to the house. When they initially applied for a search warrant to search the house, citing that the golf club used was a part of set. It was Michael Skakel and Tommy Skakel's mother's golf club set that was used. Uh, they used that as the, as the probable cause affidavit to apply for the search warrant of the Skakel house, the original search warrant was denied. So to make a long story short, the Skakels had a lot of time to get rid of evidence if they, if they wanted to get rid of evidence. The police wanted to get right in there and look around, and it was like two or three days later before they were finally permitted, before they were finally granted a search warrant and able to go in and, and check the house. And I mean, you know, you could have cleaned that whole house from top to bottom if you're guilty uh, mm -hmm. or if you thought somebody was guilty. You definitely could have gotten rid of any evidence that might have even led somebody to believe that it might have come from inside that house. As far as shoes, clothes, you know, they, they did ask both Michael and Tommy for what clothes they were wearing that night. They did not ask the tutor for his clothes until much later. And it was only after and we're now we're talking months down the road when an ex-girlfriend of the tutor it was only months later when his girlfriend came forward his ex-girlfriend that he was absolutely capable of doing this and that he had mentioned to her that he had amorous feelings for martha moxley so they had you know they started pursuing him a little bit harder as a suspect then but again i don't remember the exact time frame but i know it was 60 or so days after the murder so this, what we really have here as far as evidence collection is a tragedy because they did not collect evidence properly. The one thing we do know, though, is that there was no male DNA found on her body as far as semen. This is what precipitated the psychologist and the prosecutor to develop the theory of the case wherein they believe that something she did to mock him 
made him impotent so that he could not ejaculate. And they formulate that opinion not only on the evidence and the rage and sticking the shaft through her neck, but also because he freely admitted that he used to regularly climb the tree by her bedroom window and masturbate while looking at her through the window. Or did he say that to, in his mind, um, you know, bolster his his own sexuality? I mean, we don't know what he did in that tree. Maybe he exactly right. He exactly couldn't right. get it up then either. And and they were not able, They believe me when I tell you, they tested the tree too. And they tested the tree numerous numerous times and they never found any semen samples in the tree either. Mm-hmm. Not on the bark, sure. not on the branches, not on the leaves, nothing. Yeah, so I'm wondering if um, maybe he couldn't get it up and, I mean, she could have been, um, you know, in his mind, every female that he could not have sex with. Because of his problem. I mean, it's very true. Keep in mind, too, though, he was still very young at that at that point. He wasn't uh, he wasn't a, a grown man at that. He was still a juvenile, too. Uh, 15 or 16, I think he was at the time. I think he was a year yeah. older than her. Or was, so he was 15 or 16 at the time. So I, I don't think he really had a, a lot of sexual experience, probably other than her, at that point. But that could have... You know, with him not having experience, and then in his mind, he said, oh, I've got this problem. Then you've got a powder keg sure. ready to go off. Sure. And it's also possible since he was, you know, for, he was a voyeurist. He was a peeping Tom. Mm-hmm. Like, it's sort of like how guys, when they watch so much porn and they go to actually have sex with girls, they <sighs> can't get it up. They can't ejaculate, those sort of things. So it could be that when he did try to get it up when he was with her, he didn't have that added aspect of not like he's like doing this secretly as a voyeurist if that makes sense so that could have also been another reason he couldn't have gotten it up because it wasn't under the certain terms that was his like kink per se absolutely there is no in my experience and i don't know diane you could uh, chime in here and what you've seen in your experience also i have never seen any cases like this that ultimately end in murder or rape where the motivation for the crime is any stronger than being a psychosexual motivation. Not money, not power, not the house, not the cars, not the influence over her. When you have a psychosexual motivation, to, from what I've seen, it generates a kind of rage, a brand of rage in these people that is really unsurpassed in my experience. What do you think, Diane? No, I agree where you get a situation like this where it's more of a frenzied killing and the repeated striking on her head. It wasn't just one blow. It it just sounded so devastating. And listening to what the police said who came across the crime scene, they just said it was it was just so terrible. You couldn't even tell what color her hair was. And that just hearing all that, I'm thinking exactly. This had nothing to do with money or just a slight jealousy. This was such a deep-rooted emotion. And to me, I got the feeling that it was something that had developed over time. And the fact that this tutor had just arrived, I think that day, that just didn't ring true to me that he would commit this kind of a crime against someone he had perhaps just met that day or very recently. It seemed to me that it was someone perhaps that had developed feelings over a longer period of time. I agree with Diane because there is her journaling into that diary specifically stating 
some of her feelings and some of the interaction with her and Tommy and then how she had mentioned a few times that she thought that Michael was being a jerk to her. And so that could have been that she messed around with Tommy a little bit and and then he gets the hearsay from his brother and now he's going to go, I guess, maybe act out what he had already been fantasizing about for so long. That's very true. And there was at the, there was a lot of speculation at the trial and in reports that I've read where Tommy, knowing that Michael was, for all intents and purposes, in love in, in his own mind, I don't think it really was love, but it was more like, you know, lust. He was in lust with Martha so badly that Tommy, being, you know, sibling rivalry and, and wanting to, uh, to rub his brother's nose in it a little bit, used to embellish his relationship with Martha to Michael, telling Mark, Michael that they had had sex and that they had, you know, that she had done certain acts on him and that he had done certain acts on her, at just trying to get a rise out of Michael. Right. And let's let's just be honest. This is a very powerful family as it is. There's probably already a lot of competition with only with the brothers, but just within that family itself, already power struggles that are innately raised into these kids. Absolutely. Right. I had read that these two brothers were fierce rivals. And just thinking about it more now is that may have fed into the rage is that that was the murder apparently happened very shortly after Martha had been making out with the older brother, Tommy. They think she may have been murdered based on some dogs barking. It could have been in the 9.30 to 10 p.m. time frame. And I think she'd been making out with him very shortly before that. So the kind of rage that if this was Michael, the kind of rage that a younger brother might be feeling, not just because perhaps she spurned him, but because it was his own brother who was the one that was making out with her. And that would just be kind of a double whammy in terms of the emotional impact on someone. I, I agree. Cause you have no idea like how much maybe Michael might've said, you know, Oh my gosh, I have, you know, these feelings for Martha. He may have for a very period of time expressed to his brother, his interest in Martha. And then all of a sudden the brother gets Martha. Absolutely. Right. And you know, you have the anticipation then after watching physically with his own eyes, Tommy making out with Martha, he knows, boy, I'm never going to hear the end of this. Uh, you know, all night tonight after we go to bed and we're because the, they shared a bedroom uh, all night tonight after we go to bed, all I'm going to hear about is how great Martha was and, you know, how she did this and, and all this other kind of stuff that was that would have been enough to set him off as it is. Then factor in, he goes and he tries to have sex with Martha or initiate sex with Martha in some way without, you know, attacking her first. I don't some, think that he, he started out by attacking her. Something just he dawned on me when you said that. I literally just got this feeling that it may not even, not only have been just jealousy rage, but like, I'm going to take away from you something that you want. Like if he's not going to be able to have her, mm-hmm. you know, this is a very common situation and I'm sure Diane can relate to this, you know, um, coming from where she's been in her practice. But if, if I can't have it, then no one else is going to have it. That's a very common phrase on controlling people. And I just got this very overwhelming feeling when you were saying that of this, this vision or this feeling of like, well, if I can't have her, Tommy's not going to have her either. And that may have been removing something from Tommy that meant something to him or that he liked. And now you don't get to have her. 
I think yeah. that's a hundred percent, Ellie. Hundred percent. Absolutely. And along, and along that line, also, you know, if we eliminate Martha, then gee, Tommy and I can get along again, or better, or whatever. So that would have fixed that part of his life as well. And and again, factor into that in the middle of this tirade that he goes on where he's trying to show her that he's just as much if not more of a man than Tommy is all of a sudden he can't perform and he can't get an erection factor in Martha saying something off the cuff like at least Tommy can get it up mm-hmm. and you have instant blind rage well, well and what happened she 15 yes mm-hmm. and that Were brings me Tommy to my sexually point. active no, she was a virgin under it said in the autopsy, I believe. Yes. They, okay, they so had, nobody nobody raped her. Nothing ever actually happened with anyone. She was still a virgin. Right. There yes. was no actual penetration. There was, I mean, obviously he tried to do something with her because she was stripped naked or whatever the case may. But you know, he there was no actual intercourse. No, I was meaning like in the past with Tommy and Martha. If you listen to Tommy, Tommy claims that she performed oral sex on him numerous times and that he performed oral sex on her numerous times. That's possible. So th- this is what Tommy, you, at trial, that's what came out. And if, if I get the trial transcript, you'll be able to see that. But Tommy claims that this happened numerous times, that he had oral sex interchangeably with Martha on numerous occasions, and he used to rub Michael's nose in that. Oh my gosh. Well, there there it is there. We definitely need those transcripts because it'd be interesting to see what Tommy's opinion is uh, and, you know, how he felt Michael was reacting or responding to all that. Well, t- I mean, Tommy's, Tommy's opinion at trial was, listen, my brother and I had a fierce rivalry, just like the Kennedy brothers all had fierce rivalries with one another. But when Chip, when push comes to shove, we're brothers and we're family and family comes first and no matter how upset he was, my brother's not a killer. Tommy's own words. No, so no matter how upset my brother trial. was, passed off at me, my brother's not a killer. So he testified at the trial? Tommy yes. did? Yes. But they said he lied about everything. There was definitely some lying going on. Now, I, that's where the jury's job becomes paramount. you got to pick and choose as a juror, uh, you know, what do you want to believe and what you don't want to believe. Very few people appear in court, and Diane will definitely testify to this, I know. Very few people appear in court and either tell nothing but lies or nothing but the truth. (laughs) There's there's almost always a little bit of both, and it's up to the jury to differentiate what's what. Right, or they may not be as forthcoming. They may technically tell the truth, but they may not tell the whole truth. Exactly. I'm curious, who called him to the stand? Was it the prosecution or the defense who called Tommy to the stand? I'd like to find that out. It was the defense. He was defending Michael and telling the jury in no uncertain terms, no matter what, he firmly believes that his brother is not a killer. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure I would say it's necessarily a lie. As we all know, Tommy and her were in an intimate relationship. He is going through grief. It is very possible that he's sort of stuck in this denial phase. Like, no matter what evidence you're going to say, like, his brother didn't do this. Like, it's not, that's not how it went. That's totally possible that he's not necessarily lying. Rather, he just doesn't want to believe it. Absolutely true. You know, absolutely true. In those families, there's also a lot of pressure to do the right thing by your family. A case in point on this is another case that I want us to go over in the future 
And that's the case of Edward Kennedy driving his car off the bridge there with his pregnant secretary and his love child in the car and then leaving them to die in the car while walking back into town. There's no doubt that that happened. There's no doubt he was driving the car. There's no doubt she was pregnant. There's no doubt that it was his child. I can't believe the price of dog food is getting outrageous. And if I want to save a few bucks, I have to carry a 50-pound bag of kibble up the stairs into my apartment. There has to be a better way. There is. I'm so glad you said something. You poor thing, we've been using TummyTimePetSupplies.com for over a year now. Tummy Time Pet Supplies? What's that? TummyTimePetSupplies.com. They have all the major brands and most smaller brands as well. In fact, we not only get all of our dog and cat supplies there, but they also have everything we need for Brett's chinchilla, Ashley's ferrets, Haley's iguana, and even Jordan's pet tarantula. Wow, they sell all that? And more. But what's best about TummyTimePetSupplies.com is that they ship everything through Amazon Fulfillment. That means that everything you order gets delivered right to your door, and if you're an Amazon Prime customer, shipping is almost always free. That really sounds incredible, but I bet it's super expensive. Mark just got laid off and I can't afford all those special conveniences for a while. Nonsense. In fact, Tummy Time offers some of the most reasonable prices anywhere. You really have to be a whiz and coupon shopping to beat their everyday prices, and when they run sales, forget about it. I can't believe it, an incredible selection, great prices, and right to your door service. So what do you think? I think the next time I buy anything for my pets I'm going to TummyTimePetSupplies.com. I think that's a very wise choice. Me too. That's right. For all your pet needs, it's TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Remember TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Thanks for tuning in. We know you have a choice and appreciate that you've chosen the Veritas 7. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and post a rating for the show before you go. Those metrics are really important for us. And if it's within your means to help us carry on our mission to revitalize these cold cases, please consider becoming one of our sponsors by visiting Patreon.com forward slash The Veritas 7 and signing up for any of our three available tiers of sponsorship. Each one provides a ton of extra content, like message chatting with our hosts in real time while we're recording, or even being able to call in voicemails to the show that we'll play on the air. Thanks again for being such an awesome listener. Now back to the show. And there's no doubt that he was married to somebody else at the time. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there were no charges filed. And everybody talks about how great of a man he was right up until the day he died. He remained a senator uh, right up until the day he died. So he kept getting reelected. Nobody cared that he drove this car off the bridge and left his pregnant secretary in the car to drown while he got up and walked into town for an hour and then came back with help. Was anybody think that she'd still be alive after that? But the point making, bringing that case up as an example, everybody stood by his side. Nobody wanted to believe that he was capable of that being an intentional act. So everybody gave him the benefit of the doubt, except obviously the people who didn't. And there have been books that have been written about it and, and, you know, where he should have been charged with murder or at the very least criminally negligent homicide. I, I mean, all kinds of different things, but n- never a charge was raised, and his credibility and character remained unimpeached for pretty much for the rest of his life. He killed somebody, whether it be accidentally on purpose, uh, you know, we'll never know. That's that's a, an academic matter for debate. 
because everybody involved is dead now. But the fact remains, he was never charged for it. So, I, yo, go ahead, Pig. I don't want to get like too like political about it, but there is like lengths society will go to in order to uphold this sort of men who are in power. Who cares about the mistress? She was a homewrecker. Like, who cares if that happened anyway? He's a powerful man who is in power. Like, there is things that society will do to uphold that through, like, cognitive dissonance and all these sorts of things. I don't know if anybody else agrees with me, but that's some, that uh, that's definitely something I see in this. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I, I bet you Diane probably agrees with you, too. No, I, I definitely do. And there's a little bit of that in this case as well, because Robert F. Kennedy's son, RFK Jr., Junior, who's running for president right now, yes. He wrote a book called Framed, and it was about um, Michael being framed for this case. And he pointed the finger at three guys from New York City who had been to this area apparently a few times, but no one had actually seen them there that night. But he was saying that the culprits were these three other guys. And I guess he said that they had somehow gotten into the house and got a hold of the golf club. So he was trying to point the finger at somebody entirely out outside of the family. Yes, he was. And there's another ironic note to that. Out of everybody in the family, he's the only one that's really been outspoken about it to the point where he wrote a book, like you said. But he also has a reputation, right, of being this really wild conspiracy theorist. This is the guy that also wrote a book about how COVID-19 is a weaponized weapon that was that was introduced into the population to reduce the population of the planet. And he adamantly believes that. I'm not saying he's wrong. I, 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 we don't know, you know, but that's not his first conspiracy theory and it's probably not going to be his last. He's really got a reputation for leaning towards the wild side and picking the most improbable scenario as his point of view or at least one of the most improbable scenarios as his point of view. So again, he's running for president right now. I trying to use his father's name and his uncle's name. It's not really, as we record this, he's not really doing too well in the polls. And I believe my personal opinion, again, not trying to get too political like Paige, but I believe his name alone would be enough to get him elected president if he wasn't such a conspiracy theorist. If he could tone back on his rhetoric a little bit, he would probably be much more competitive in the polls in this race as it's going right now. I I just think a lot of people discredit him because he's gone out of his way to lean on the, you know, on the extreme side of what might possibly have happened. He also is a, you know, a staunch believer. His uncle Ed was innocent, even though Edward Kennedy, if you all remember several years after that incident, many years after that incident, a helicopter recorded him running around chasing uh, one of his housekeepers, bottomless, completely naked, wearing a pink polo shirt, running around in his backyard around the pool chasing a housekeeper for sex. There, there was video images of that all over the news. I remember watching it. I was like maybe 20, 21. Again, it didn't do anything for his reelection chances. He never even came close to losing a senatorial race in Massachusetts. Just an odd thing about all that. You know, and then we have Tommy. Tommy came out and he spoke for his brother. Does that mean that he really doesn't believe that his brother did it? Or does it mean that he's just doing the Kennedy Skakel thing and just blood over water always? I don't know. I mean, it could be a a little bit of both. It could be because of this tradition of holding like 
of helping each other out like that in the way that they see it, they truly don't believe because it's just so ingrained in them. It could be both. It's very possible. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the Robert and John relationship and how, you know, as brothers, they kind of protected one another. Um, you know, people suspect the Marilyn Monroe thing was a cover up among brothers. So there's a history of this blood. Well, there absolutely is. There's no doubt. Even just look at the way Joe Kennedy, the father, the patriarch of the family, look at the way he made all the millions and millions of millions that the family has. It was through prohibition. He was running shine and running liquor and underground uh, bars through prohibition is where he made all his money. The family that is regarded across American history made their name from illegal acts, you know, mostly. Uh, you have John F. Kennedy to this day. There are people to this day that will tell you that, you know, John F. Kennedy could have done nothing wrong. He was the greatest president in the world. I don't know about them. I, I don't have anything against the man. He was assassinated before I was born. But clearly they didn't spend too much time studying the Bay of Pigs invasion or Vietnam and how Vietnam escalated under his presidency or all the I mean. The whole Marilyn Monroe debacle, the whole, for whatever good you want to say about him, and you never want to speak ill of the dead, and the, the man didn't deserve to get assassinated no matter what, but the fact remains, this really wasn't a good guy. Exactly. He did good things. Guess what? You know what? Jeffrey Dahmer did good things. <laughs> Ted Bundy did good things. We only know them. They're only notorious for the horrible things that they did. But they didn't spend every minute of their life doing horrible things. And matter of fact, Ellie and I have a standing joke in a lot of our shows where I said, you know, even even the worst serial killer only did that shit part time. I mean, everybody like has their good points. It's the bad points that you have to pay attention to. How bad are the bad points? Because everyone can have a good moment, a good day. Um, love their cat, you know, and the next thing you know, they're, they're eating people and storing them in their refrigerator. Like absolutely a broken, a broken clock is like right twice a day. Exactly. I like that. I like that. But but now the moralistic question in that is from a psychological standpoint, at what point does the bad things that you do in your life supersede the good things that you've done in your life? At what point do you become a social scumbag? Because the horrible things in the eyes of, the, of any ro logical, rational human outweigh the good things that you've done in your life that everybody has done. The worst human, Ed Gein, go pick, pick a name, pick a name. The, the worst person in history had a mother and probably got her flowers for Mother's Day and probably helped the neighbor's cat and did, probably did a lot more good things in their life than they did bad things. But the dozen or so bad things that they did were so bad was it that his, that's all anybody remembers. Uh, was it Adolf Hitler who spared somebody's life during combat or something? But well, and he loved his wife dearly. <laughs> I mean, literally loved his wife dearly, right? So they could say he was a good husband. Yeah. So you know, there's been that. But I mean, at what in in what you're saying, Kurt, and and that angle is. You know, at what point is bad so bad? Well, sometimes when you have families that cover up your bad behavior or excuse your bad behavior or try to get you out of your bad behavior, hence the Kennedy and Skakel family. 
Right. At yeah. what point does it become like obstruction of justice? Because that's always something that we're looking at as prosecutors as well. It's not always sometimes what you do, but it's what you do afterwards to cover it up and perhaps lie about it or um, hide evidence to protect a loved one. And at what point do you cross the line in trying to protect or enable people that you actually commit a crime yourself? Clearly lying on the stand for them crosses that line. But on the other on the other tax of all the other heinous things that we've talked about, if you're not on the witness stand, where is that line? I rank documents like if you know that there's a subpoena out for clothing or there's a search warrant out for Michael and Tommy's clothing and you burn it. I mean, I would argue that that's obstruction of justice. So when you know that that there's a warrant or a subpoena out and you destroy evidence, then clearly that's illegal. But now here's the technical legal question that I would think any any defense attorney worth the salt. And I'll get to you in just a second, Paige. Any defense attorney that's worth his salt is going to say to that, if there is no warrant yet, and I decided I wanted to donate his clothes to Goodwill, or I wanted to burn them, or I wanted to throw them out, or whatever the case may be, before the warrant was issued, did I commit a crime? Probably not, but the warrant should be phrased in a way to ask about whether did it exist. You know what I mean? There are ways to try to get around it, but you're right. If you dispose of evidence before you've been asked for it under legal authority of the court or you know, prosecution, subpoena. It's very hard to prosecute people for perjury as well. It doesn't happen a lot. Right. Well, and that's, and that's the thing in that case, by delaying the search warrant a couple of days, they basically gave themselves and their housekeepers carte blanche to destroy anything without committing a crime, technically. Mm-hmm. Were there any lie detectors done with any of these, Tommy or Michael? I believe Michael was, I believe Michael was polygraphed. I I don't think Tommy was. Mm -hmm. So we have no polygraph and no DNA. Right. (laughs) Other than hers. And and that's where they they wanted to, they covered their tracks with not having any of their DNA on the crime scene. But was any of her DNA brought back into the house? That's the question. And, you know, we'll never know because they had a good, they had a hot 72 hours to sterilize that house before the cops ever got a look in there. I also think it'd be hard for them to get DNA on her when you're hitting somebody that far away with the golf club. And also they were friends. They were hanging out every day. They were neighbors. They were the same age. Mm -hmm. Of course, some of her DNA is going to be in the house. It'd be weird if there wasn't. But if it's blood DNA, that would be different. So that's what I would want to know is what if it's, right, is it skin DNA or blood DNA? And I, I don't know if they ever tested the golf club itself for DNA because if Michael or Tommy's DNA was on there that that could be explained but if it was some if it was the tutor or some other third party then how on earth would they explain why their DNA was on this golf club they, exactly. no, they, did, they meticulously tested the golf club there was no DNA there was no fingerprints there was no nothing on the golf club or the breaking of the club was it was it broken on a tree was it broken on a knee if so was there bruising you if you snap a club on your knee there's got to be some kind of markings or anything on their hands from gripping something so tight and over and over and over bludgeoning i mean there has to, there has to be something somewhere in these reports or it just the, was overlooked the reason why the reason why there might not be and i agree with you on the normal cases there would be but the reason why there might not be is because they were, these were female golf clubs, a female's golf club. 
So it was extremely light in the shaft. And they're, they're made for that. They're made for the shaft to be extremely light, even for a man's golf club. Uh, the only thing that's meant to be heavy is the tip. So when the, once the tip broke off, that whole golf club weighed a matter of a few ounces. Very, very thin, very, very light, and very easy for anybody to break over their knee. I have a question for Diane. I think, I think that's at least who might have an answer for me. So these were, these were kids, and I, you know it's hard to believe that kids could, you know, mastermind or, or come up with some way of somebody walking free after committing murder. So, who? Why are we here tonight? Who orchestrated the confusion of evidence and? made a mess of it. You know, it's interesting. And so I think it goes back to what Kurt was saying about this big time delay between the crime and when this house was searched and where evidence may have been destroyed. If the police had been able to get in immediately, either they would have found, I presume that the culprit would have been somewhat covered with blood on their shoes, on their pants. I've just got to think that maybe they had a bruise on their body. And I would almost think that if the family, if everyone in the family had been innocent, then they would have welcomed this because it would exonerate them. And so I think that families, perhaps they banded together and perhaps I think the dad was out of town. And so maybe there were like seven kids in that family and I don't know. I think that the dad came back quickly and who knows what went on in there, but it was a big family. And I think that they stick together and they had the benefit of time. If one of them was the culprit, they had the benefit of time to dispose and clean up the evidence. That's a really good point. And I have a question for all of you guys. Um, Kurt, did you mention that there was two clubs? I think I read, was there two clubs removed from her golf bag or just one? Just one. One club removed. And then how far was that golf club bag? Was it stored in the garage or where was that location compared to where um, Martha was killed? She had just used them that day or the day before. So they were actually in the foyer of the house. <laughs> so they were, they were there and opportunistic for anybody coming in or going out of the front door of the house could have just grabbed the golf club and ran with it. Uh, and so they, they weren't were stored in the anywhere. They were right there. So something could have happened with an accident with Martha and then they went to get the club to finish it off. Or, I mean, it's just who's going to walk, who's just going to grab one club. Obviously, there was intent once that club was grabbed. Absolutely. You know what? I had a scenario that I thought of and I have no idea if this comports with the evidence or not or what the prosecution's theory was. But I was wondering if someone in the Skakel house could be looking out the window and seeing Martha making out with Tommy and then in a rage, grabbing the club and heading over across the street. Because that, to me, makes sense of why someone would have a club with them, as opposed to leaving her, going across the street, grabbing the club, and then coming back. I don't that know if it's possible. I really. agree with you on that. I thought sounds very, the most likely scenario is he saw them making out or saw them going off together. And, and Tommy may have even been witness to Michael, and they covered each other's tracks on that. I don't know. That was, that was one of the theories that was posited at the trial was that Michael very likely could have witnessed what happened or even helped. 
there was there was a theory that the two of them did it together. That's the way I'm leaning. Um, but, but now a, another thing is it's also very possible, especially for a young boy who's not emotionally developed real well, which we know Michael wasn't because even as a grown up, he's still not emotionally developed real well. But it's very possible that he might have gone out just to confront her with the golf club in his hand to threaten her to see him imposing because he was a he was a pretty little kid. He, he yes. wasn't a big, brawny, stocky. So, I mean, if he approached her and was, like, co- confrontational, she probably could have kicked his ass. Or approached the brother and threatened him, right? He maybe has been in love with her. The brother knew. Next thing you know, he sees the brother making out with her and goes down to beat brother's butt with the golf club. and Very and possible. Up- so either one of those scenarios makes it plausible as to why he would have a golf club in his hand. He might not have grabbed it with the intent of killing her. But as an adult, um, what I saw was that he was 5'9", and she was 5'4". Right. And so, you know, that about to look imposing, I can buy that too. Well, I I mean, you could, but if you look a little bit closer, you'll notice that he didn't have a muscle on his body. He might have been 5'9", but he was 5'9", like a buck 10. Well, yeah, that's what I meant was that in order to look imposing like you were talking about, I right, agree exactly. with you. No, yeah, because, because she was athletic. She could yes. she ran, she played soccer, she played like she played all these sports and he didn't do any of that. Right. I mean that kind of stuck out in my head when right. you know, I was well, looking yeah, at that home. wasn't lost on anybody at the trial either. In a fair fight, she probably could have handed it to him. Did they talk about that very much? Not not a lot. Not a lot, but just, you know, they did mention that he's a slight guy. They were trying to establish, as Diane will tell you, whenever a prosecutor is, is prosecuting a case, they need to answer those questions. Well, what was he doing in the yard? You're going to have to explain to the jury what was he doing in the yard with a golf club in his hand. You well, know what I, I mean? Why, why would he do that unless he planned on murdering her? Well, not necessarily. He could have just tried to make himself look imposing. Yeah, I mean... It, I, you know, Diane can answer this better than I can, but, you know, why didn't they go that direction more? Because it's just speculation. I, really, that's what it is. Because you, there's no way to know. Obviously, he's not going to tell you what his motivation was if he grabbed the club. So you could spin your wheels until you blo- The only thing you really want to do is introduce the possibility into the jury's mind and then let it fester. And hopefully well, it plants a seed and grows into a, into the beanstalk. As a juror, I, I think I would have gone, hmm, that's kind of compelling. I might have. Go ahead, Paige. What were you, what were you saying about it? I just want to backtrack a little bit. Somebody said that they're leaning towards Tommy being involved with the killing. Is that what I heard somebody say? I think so. I'm yeah. not leaning towards that way, but I would like to hear why you guys are leaning towards that way. It's not that I'm leaning towards that way, but at the trial, it was one of the theories that was posited to the jury is that it's possible that they did that as an attempt to impeach Tommy's testimony for the defense in favor of his brother, that he was defending his brother for the simple fact that he was in on it. And that if his brother decided to save his own hide by flipping and confessing, he would have necessarily incriminated Tommy as well, which is why Tommy was doing everything in his power to get his brother found not guilty. 
I'm really not leaning towards that way because I really think that they had an intimate relationship with each other and he's in grief. And I think that denial is a really huge symptom of grief. Like I really am not leaning towards that way. I think that he was gone when it happened. And I don't know what, what was his motive? What would his, what would his motive have been? We've heard no evidence or I've heard no evidence that. that Yeah, there's no motive. Well, the, the only motive would have been if he had come back early and found her making out with Michael. Mm-hmm. And in that case, he might have grabbed the golf club. See, you've got to get the golf club from the house to her. Right. What, do you, what, were, you, what were you saying, April? Well, I was kind of going back to Ellie's or the question she had earlier about the lie detector test. I mean, Littleton, he did. He failed two separate lie detector tests and police had noted that he was not truthful at answering the key questions. So I don't know. He, he, he lied. Absolutely. Well, the thing is though, this is why polygraph evidence isn't admissible in court. You can still be telling the truth and fail a polygraph. Well, how much would a tutor have made back then? What do you, what do you think he was getting paid? Well, he was getting a free roof over his head in a mansion. So that's a pretty good paycheck right there. He was that's, living in a he was living in a ten million dollar house in nineteen seventy five, which is about a hundred million now. Yeah, and it, he would have reason to lie about some things to keep that. <laughs> right. Just saying, you know. You know the old axiom of "Don't bite the hand that feeds you." Mm-hmm. So if you have this family that's willing to give you this lifestyle that you could never live in a million years without their support and without being their tutor. Some people just don't want to give that up. And, and it's, it's enough knowing that this family that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars is going to probably take care of me for the rest mm-hmm. of my life if I lie for them to keep their son, your, their precious son out of prison. Of course. So now we're kind of looking at, are we looking at him again? These are all just, that's the thing. That's the I great know. thing about what we do is we're just throwing out there possible scenarios. Any one of these scenarios could have been how it happened. But every one of them starts to sound very plausible the more we talk about each one. And and honestly, that's the reason why nobody's in prison for it right now. Because Mm. there there are so many people that could have done it. It's impossible to prove that one person did it. Yep. This is a tough case, too, because it seems to me that various people changed their stories over time. We know that both Tommy and Michael changed their story because the family had hired someone to put together a report and they both had changed their story from where they had said that they were that night. And also I think other witnesses were changing their story too. I think some had said that, or there were, even if they didn't change their story, there were inconsistencies between witnesses as to whether or not Michael actually went to a cousin's house and watched whatever show they were watching that night. I think some witnesses placed him there and some witnesses said absolutely not. He wasn't there. So it was just a messy case in terms of these witnesses. And probably a lot of them were teenagers. Maybe they were drinking. It was the night before Halloween. So that just makes this case harder as well. Absolutely. And that's, you you can't track down the movements when you have so many people telling stories that conflict. You can't track down anybody's movements. You can't say with any certainty who is the only one we know that for a fact was in the backyard was Martha. 
Right. And we don't have cell phones back then. We can't track where their cell phones were. We don't know where they were pinging. We can't track where the cars were. You know, there were no cameras back then, no surveillance cameras. No actual intercourse, no DNA, no all of the all of the markers, all of the evidence, all of the triggers that we use today to solve crimes are absent in this case. And, you know, when you have a family with means like that, you literally they have unlimited means. And this police department is not at all prepared to handle anything like this. This was out of their league, really. Absolutely. They're, they're like the Beverly Hills of the East Coast. Greenwich, Greenwich is like the Beverly Hills of the East Coast. Between, it's between Greenwich and the Hamptons at the end of Long Island. And both of those towns are only like 20 miles apart with, with a body of water in between them. I agree with Matt in the fact that they weren't equipped to handle this. And so there are so many things that weren't done properly in the process and then that's why we're here this many years later with an unsolved case oh absolutely it's it was such a blight on the history of the town that the homeowners association in the area the the people on that road and we have a lot of photos crime scene photos of what that road looks like up and down in the house and what it looked like at the time they pressured the moxleys to move after that because the, the neighborhood just didn't want the attention so once the case went cold, the Moxleys were alienated to the point where they left. As soon as the Moxleys moved out, a $7 million house, they bulldozed it. I hate that so much. <laughs> as soon as the Moxleys left and sold the house, they bulldozed it and built a new bigger mansion on it. It should have totally been the other way around. They ripped the tree out. Any semblance of the crime scene of where Martha died, where her body, it looks nothing like that now. And we have all of those photos. We have the aerial overhead photos. We have the in situ uh, photos, uh, what it looked like then, what it looked like now, where the body was, where the club was. We have all of that. Overlay maps. And what it looks like now is completely different than what it looked like back then. The Skakel house, still exactly the same way it was. The neighbor's house on the other side of the Moxley house, still exactly the same way it was. But they bulldozed the Moxley house and built a new mega mansion where it used to sit. That happens in a lot of infamous or very well-known murder cases. Like O.J. Simpson's house was bulldozed, um, where Sharon Tate was murdered. I know that that house was taken down and a new house put up. I always wonder if people, it would just be too hard to live in a house like where something like that had happened. Then you have the Amityville Horror House is still there. They changed the way the house looks and they put up trees that are like 30 feet tall so that you can't see the house from the street anymore. But I, I get people, I guess, get really sick of passersby just coming and sitting in front of their house and ogling their house. So I, I could definitely see where a lot of that would happen. Yeah, well, but it's just have- sad because ultimately... You know, someone lost their life and a family lost their daughter and, you know, she's the victim. And Absolutely. it's just sad that they got ostracized to that point. Absolutely. And the only thing she did wrong was liking the boy that lived next door and making out with him. I just hope the family at least got a lot of money for that property. That's all I can say. Yeah, I, I don't least. think they did. I, I think they sold it at a loss. I don't After a house has history like that, that usually yeah. doesn't do wonders for the market value. No, it's so sad. I saw a pretty recent tape of Martha's mom talking. She's she was elderly in the tape. And yes. it's just like, look, this 
this is the worst thing ever. This is never going away. And it's horrible that I'd never heard that the neighbors had ostracized them and made them feel like they had to move. That's just compounds the grief. You would hope that if a family has something horrible like this happen, that their neighbors in the town would support them through such a terrible, terrible crime against their daughter. They did support them while the cameras were rolling. While all the media and all the press and all the cops were all there, they were the best neighbors in the world. As soon as the the attention died down and the lights went off and the camera crews packed it in, that it was like you got to go. Well, I always have such a hard time with when when something occurs to a girl in some of these cases, and especially a girl as young as Martha, um, that the victim becomes, oh, well, we did this sexually or we did that sexually. I mean, we're talking, you know, a long time ago where that probably wasn't as common back then, especially at the age of 15. Now, granted, we'll never really know, but there really isn't any evidence saying that she did these things other than Tommy's word. But again, that also, I'm sure, is difficult on the family to have to hear those rumors or their speculations to be talked about their daughter along with already losing their daughter. And there's no evidence that she did, you know, oral other than his word saying they did. Exactly none. You're right. There's there's no evidence or proof of it whatsoever. She does, You would think that she would write something to that effect in her diary if she was really doing it. She might not get graphic because she was only a 15-year-old girl, and 15-year-old girls just don't think that graphically. But, uh, you know, she might have been like, you know, tonight's the night with Tommy. That's the kind of thing a 15-year-old girl would write in her diary. Right, so, right. And none of that was a lot of frustration there. over Michael in her diary, though. Yeah, right. Yes. Frustration, but nothing sexual was in her diary no. that I had read. Exactly. No, I don't know. Obviously, what, you know what the situation in the case is at this point. It really looks like if Skakel's not going to get charged with it again, and that's it. That's the justice that Martha's mother is going to get out of this. Her father died many years ago already. You know, so her mother's been been carrying this flag uh, for all of these years, not unsimilar to the way uh, Natalie Holloway's mother's been carrying that flag. Her father, you know, ironically, doesn't appear in a lot of the publicity. He he's never really done half the things publicly. I'm sure he grieves, and I'm I'm not trying to insinuate that he doesn't miss his daughter and love his daughter. But there's, I mean, there's there's nothing like the love of a mother. There's just not. I could have been Charlie Manson and killed 50 people and my mother would have been on my side of the table at trial. Nothing like the love of a mother. Definitely. That's the thing with this case. Unfortunately, or I should say fortunately, at least her mother got those 12 years. She got that conviction that got him locked up for a little while. 12 people on that jury all unanimously believed that he killed her. And whether or not procedurally there was something wrong with that trial or not. Bottom line is, he was convicted. Whatever the prosecution did, it was good enough to convince 12 people in another state 25 years after it happened. Some of them weren't even born yet when, he, when the crime was committed. Because there were people on that jury that were only like 22 and 23. His trial occurred 25 years after the fact. And there have been worse punishments for or like you know lighter punishments and that is worse for the victims obviously for second degree murders that were committed by minors Absolutely. i'm not saying that i like this outcome but to say that there wasn't justice i'm just not sure that's true 
I agree with you, Paige. And the mom even said that Martha's mom said that recently where she said, you know, he did his time. He served his time. He, I'm not saying he deserves less or more. I've just, it happened. And that's that. Yeah. I mean, the circumstances of the case are, are what they are. I look at it like this evidence that I've seen. I can't say that there's enough to give him life in prison or to give him the, the needle or the chair so I believe the amount of time that he did, considering the evidence, is fair. Because he was 15 at the time. Right. 15-year-old kid. Obviously, or at least, you know, it doesn't look like he ever did it again. Yeah. He made a mistake and it cost somebody their life if he is, in fact, the guilty party. But under the circumstances and what, with what they have, the real travesty of justice in this case, I think, is that he had a, we had to wait. 25 years for him to get convicted 25 years of freedom the best years of his life mm-hmm. those are the years he should have spent in prison rather Agreed. than the later years of his life yep yeah well it'll be interesting once you have all of this that we can really dig a lot deeper into some of this yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward into i'm looking forward into looking into the uh to this tutor uh me Catherine too my, me too Cat's right, man. You you kind of got me thinking that this guy may have grabbed a club and ran across the street. The only thing that leads me against that is that he really just moved into that house. So he must move really quick to for you to get feelings that strong that you're going to kill a 15-year-old girl like a day or two after you met her. You got to be a special breed of dirtbag. I just don't see a motive there. Well, he, yeah, I agree well, with Kate. I don't see a it. motive either. He definitely knew about it. I think right. the whole family did. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did he know Martha prior to this tutoring venture? That's a great question. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I'd know. Love like to, I said, I'd they, love to get all the details on him. We know that there was a great special on this on Oxygen several years ago. And I'm going to try and get that video and post it on our YouTube page where Martha's brother actually takes the camera crew through the neighborhood. And drives them past the house, and you see the Skakel house, and then you see where him and Martha and the family used to live. Although he goes, you know, he he meticulously makes no points about telling you it didn't look anything like this when we lived here. Uh, you know, he, he tells you that that you know a couple of years later the house was knocked down and, and rebuilt, whatever. After they, that's where you learn about how they were ostracized by the neighborhood, and it was just they weren't really they weren't told that they had to leave, but they were made very uncomfortable because everybody loved the Skakels, and the Skakels owned that house for another twenty years after Martha's murder. So the neighborhood rallied around the Skakels because they were royalty. So nobody's going to take, who the hell are the Moxleys? Nobody's going to take the side of the Moxleys over the Kennedys and the Skakels. So that's what happened. They felt alienated, and that's what, that's what made them move. It wasn't so much like people were knocking on their door, threatening them, or anything like that. People would look and, and whisper, and when you're in the store, you guys know how that goes. Uh, you know, when, when somebody, uh, everybody knows that kid at school that, you know, nobody wants them to sit at their table for lunch, and everybody looks at him and whispers and snickers. That's kind of what they were going through for the last few years after Martha was murdered, and they just got tired of dealing with that. Well, look, I look forward to getting more of this data and digging into it a little deeper. We've already gotten a lot. Like I said, we've already gotten a ton of, of crime scene photos. And the trial, the transcript of his trial is what I really want. Because that that really will, it, it explains 
all of the people that testified both for and against him. And you can see how passionate some of them were. You can also see for yourself when you when you look at the at least you could. At the, now, I've never read the transcript on paper. I was there, so I saw the inflection. But like I had mentioned earlier, when that psychologist accused him of rage murder and then getting mocked for his inability to perform sexually for Martha, he introduced the scenario that Martha might have mocked him. I'm here to tell you, it, the look on his face, it looked like he hit a nerve. His face turned red. The little vein came out on the side of his head. It looked like the psychologist hit a nerve. Even though he didn't lash out or like, you know, how dare you say that? None of that. He remained quiet. He kept his cool. But he, he, his face physically transformed. And you can't, you're not going to see that in a transcript. But the jury saw it, what I believe to be one of the key reasons why he was convicted. Because there was no, if you looked at him, his face turned beet red. In today's yeah, world, this case would have turned out way different. Yep, I agree. Um, so if y'all were, um, you know, if y'all had this case, how would y'all have defended it? If you were the defense attorney. Temporary insanity. <laughs> There's no evidence. Yeah, I would just turn around and say, listen, you know, it, it wasn't me and I'm keeping my mouth shut. And there were plenty of people over there that either wanted her sexually, claimed that they had her sexually, or, you know what I mean? Pretty much every male within, a, other than her brother and her father, within like a three block radius, wanted Martha. I so, honestly think Michael could have had some sort of temporary insanity, like mental break. Like, of, again, what we were talking about at the very beginning with that motive of sex and control that could have led to some sort of psychological break that would have made him do something that was out of character. So maybe something like that angle, but obviously he knew what he was doing was wrong. So that would be a hard one. But then they'd have, he'd have to admit that he did it, you know, yeah. obviously. So I don't I think in a case like this, he probably didn't want to. I think in a case like this, it's like what you're all saying, where you have multiple suspects that's what the defense is hammering on here is you're hammering on reasonable doubt and the fact that there are multiple suspects and can you really believe beyond a reasonable doubt that it was this one where and you just go through every other person that had the opportunity perhaps had a motive the lack of physical evidence here it's a weak case it really is it really is hard, hard to prosecute anybody without a confession in this case. Really, if somebody doesn't confess, they had to know from right right away. If you if you don't get DNA off the body, or you don't get DNA from the body in the house without a confession, you're not you're never going to get a conviction. Well, until somebody can explain, oh, it'll never happen. But the golf club, where it was, and where. To me, that's the whole thing, whether, you know, on a jury, I thought he was innocent or guilty or whatever. That golf club would have to be explained to me before I could even decide how I felt. I guess, no, it it still is. I can't decide right now who I think did it because I can't get the golf club from point A to point B. That is a hard one. Another thing that could have been, like, uh, Michael and her were friends. And the older brother had left to the party. They could have been like, let's hang out for the rest of the night. And he was so jealous earlier that he came prepared with the club. I don't know. Maybe that could have, could have happened. Was she clubbed in one place and then dragged and then stabbed under the tree? Like, was it? That, they really suffering? don't know. I can't believe the price of dog food is getting outrageous. And if I want to save a few bucks, 
I have to carry a 50-pound bag of kibble up the stairs into my apartment. There has to be a better way. There is. I'm so glad you said something. You poor thing, we've been using TummyTimePetSupplies.com for over a year now. Tummy Time Pet Supplies? What's that? TummyTimePetSupplies.com They have all the major brands and most smaller brands as well. In fact, we not only get all of our dog and cat supplies there, but they also have everything we need for Brett's chinchilla, Ashley's ferrets, Haley's iguana, and even Jordan's pet tarantula. Wow, they sell all that? And more. But what's best about TummyTimePetSupplies.com is that they ship everything through Amazon Fulfillment. That means that everything you order gets delivered right to your door, and if you're an Amazon Prime customer, shipping is almost always free. That really sounds incredible, but I bet it's super expensive. Mark just got laid off and I can't afford all those special conveniences for a while. Nonsense. In fact, Tummy Time offers some of the most reasonable prices anywhere. You really have to be a whiz and coupon shopping to beat their everyday prices, and when they run sales, forget about it. I can't believe it, an incredible selection, great prices, and right to your door service. So what do you think? I think the next time I buy anything for my pets I'm going to TummyTimePetSupplies.com. I think that's a very wise choice. Me too. That's right. For all your pet needs it's TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Remember TummyTimePetSupplies.com. Thanks for tuning in. We know you have a choice and appreciate that you've chosen the Veritas 7. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and post a rating for the show before you go. Those metrics are really important for us. And if it's within your means to help us carry on our mission to revitalize these cold cases, Please consider becoming one of our sponsors by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Veritas 7 and signing up for any of our three available tiers of sponsorship. Each one provides a ton of extra content, like message chatting with our hosts in real time while we're recording, or even being able to call in voicemails to the show that we'll play on the air. Thanks again for being such an awesome listener. Now back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for this teaser episode of the Veritas 7's presentation. We hope you enjoyed it. Again, this is just a teaser. You definitely want to look for our Gifted Insights episode pertaining to this case, as well as our Uncensored episode pertaining to this case. Again, Gifted Insights episodes are all featuring our amazing resident psychic, Gina Nisanoff, and her take on uh, what she thinks about uh, each one of the cases that we go through. So you definitely don't want to miss a single episode of Gifted Insights with Gina and I. And you'd certainly want to keep on the lookout for the Prime episodes when it comes to this and all of our other cases. That's the meat of our entire investigation. Six chapters ranging from victimology to the verdict. We go over every step of the case and break it down for you and present it in a way that hopefully at the end, can lead to our nomination for an indictment against a specific suspect or suspects. So again, nobody does it quite the way we do. We hope you enjoy the way we present it to you. We also want to encourage everybody to go and join our Facebook discussion group so that you can get in the conversation and weigh in on the verdict. We are all about interactivity here. It is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the Veritas 7. Go and join and link in to one of the chat rooms that we have there and get involved with not only our staff, but also with other listeners like yourself who are fascinated by these cases and want to talk about them as we present. If don't Quick reminder, if you like the content and you enjoy the show, please, please 
Remember to rate the show, like it, and subscribe to it. Those metrics, you know, they only take a couple of seconds on your part, but they really mean a lot to us as far as our metrics and our advertisers and our sponsors and things like that. So please, if you like the show, remember to take a minute or two and go and rate, like, and subscribe to the show. It really means a lot to us. For all of us here at the Veritas 7, thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate you. This show is all about you. Have a great night. God bless. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. So turn the car around and leave. Meet me underneath the trees. Heaven sent, and I've never felt this way.